0: My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and a couple of weeks before Christmas, my in-laws got me, as kind of an early Christmas gift, the Newsweek Special Edition um, Lord of the Rings issue, and it was really nice, except there was a ton of misinformation in it, so much so that I just had to do a video on it, so... Thank you for the magazine, and also thank you for the great content that I'm about to unload on the world. This is, of course, anything to do, nothing to do with politics, but the term fake news was just so prevalent in our society these days that I could not help it. And there's so much in here that's just so, so very bad. So let's get started and see what Newsweek got wrong. And by wrong, I mean so wrong that they either had somebody who had never read anything and just kind of skimmed some summaries, or somebody who read some of the stuff like years ago and forgot half of it. And you'll see what I mean as we get going. Now, I should mention, most of the errors in this occur kind of in the first half, which is dedicated to the books. And, I mean, you can actually see up at the top in the corner there it says the books for this section and then later we get into the movies and there's even a section on other stuff beyond that but the books take up a good half of this thing and the second page which is really before it gets into anything is just like a a giant photo image Um, but it's the Nazgul at Weathertop attacking Frodo and it says in the bottom corner The Nazgûl surround Frodo in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. While Aragorn fights them off in the film, in Tolkien's books, it's Gandalf who saves Frodo. I don't know which books these people are reading, but Gandalf never saves Frodo from Nazgûl at Weathertop. Gandalf was at Weathertop at least a day before Aragorn and the Hobbits arrived, and was long gone by the time they got attacked there. So I don't know where this came from. The early sections past this point kind of deal with Tolkien's early life, and most of the details they get pretty correct. But then they start to get into World War I and his relationship with Edith, and while some of the errors here are kind of excusable, they do get some things wrong in some important ways. So let me read you kind of a lengthy passage here. Uh, it, it talks about how during one walk, Edith began to dance for Tolkien among the trees, imprinting the moment vividly in Tolkien's mind. This is while he's on convalescence after having trench fever in World War One. And later down it says, Drawing from that afternoon, Tolkien began to write a love story. He imagined Edith as a Elvish princess, Luthien, and equated himself to a mere mortal human, Baron. Yes and no. The early versions of the Baron and Luthien story... Had Baron as an elf, but not a Sindarin elf, and that was the point of tension. Baron was not originally a man, and so that's kind of off. Forgivable because the published Silmarillion does have Baron as a human, but it gets worse. Living thousands of years before the events of The Hobbit, Baron is the last human in a group of men that had resisted the Dark Lord Morgoth. As Morgoth conquers vast swaths of Middle Earth, Baron runs to hide in the elvish community of Doriath. No no, that's really not how that works. Beren is not running to hide in Doriath. Beren escapes from certain capture in Dorthonian and ends up in Doriath pretty much by chance or fate, whatever you want to call it, but he's not like running to hide in Doriath. He's just trying to avoid being captured by Morgoth's servants there he meets the love of his life luthien singing and dancing in a glade but their love can never be as she's an immortal elf and he's a human destined to die her father king Thingol, disapproves and decides to send baron on a task he knows the man will never be able to complete from this building block tolkien wrote the silmarillion and the lord of the rings oh uh, okay first of all you can't say he built the lord of the rings from that building block because the lord of the rings was originally built from the seed of being a sequel to the hobbit and the hobbit as written wasn't really intended to be part of his overall legendarium that that kind of came as a later development as he went more and more into the lord of the rings and cory olson's theory the tolkien professor his theory is it's precisely when aragorn tells the hobbits the tale of Baird and Luthien at Weathertop that that's really when Tolkien decides to just kind of go whole hog and like, okay, fine, this is part of my mythology. But at any rate, he didn't build Lord of the Rings from this building block. That That's not really, except maybe in a very, very loose sense. That's That's putting it really, I think, putting way too much weight on this. Also, he had already begun to write other stories that would be in the Silmarillion. I want to say, if memory serves, the first one was the Eärendil story, because he wrote it based partially on the line from, uh, was it the Christ poem? I forget, but it's the one that kind of starts in Old English in much the same way that Frodo says it in Elvish, "Aya Eärendil, Elenion on Kalima," except it's a little bit different and. The translation from Old English is a little bit different, and in the poem, Earendil could possibly be an angel or a star. It's not really 100% clear. At any rate, the Baron and Luthien story was not the first thing that Tolkien wrote, and then built around that. That's not how that happened either. Next, we start actually getting into the later years when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, and it says, He flourished in the scholarly atmosphere of the ancient university, Oxford, and published The Hobbit in 1937. It was well-received as a children's story, but he wasn't content. While maintaining a full teaching load at Oxford, Tolkien worked constantly on a continuation of The Hobbit's storylines that would take more than ten years of hard work to complete. Uh, that's not, I mean, that's kind of accurate as far as it goes, but it, it makes it sound like As soon as he finished The Hobbit, he was like, you know, that was kind of nice, but I really want more. And therefore he started Lord of the Rings. No, no, no. What happened was he published The Hobbit, and the publisher liked it so much, and the population liked it so much, and bought so much of it, that the publisher was like, hey, can we get a sequel and make more money out of this? And Tolkien had to really kind of be talked into this. He, at one point... Tried to offer him the Silmarillion and say, here's what I've already got written. You want to do that? Hi, you want this? You want this? I want to publish this. And Alan and Unwin was like, "Eh, it's not really The Hobbit. And so that didn't work out. And they tried to push him and push him into, you know, writing an actual sequel to The Hobbit. That's how Lord of the Rings came about. Not because Tolkien wasn't content with The Hobbit and wanted to continue its storylines... He continued the storylines of The Hobbit because he was pressured to do so by a publisher who wouldn't take his already-written Silmarillion material. So that's... the way they say that is just so misleading. It's ludicrous. Newsweek continues, The professor himself thought of Middle-earth as a setting for a kind of native English epic saga similar to those that color the mythologies of Scandinavia. Drawing heavily from Anglo-Saxon history and literature, Beowulf was a particular favorite, Norse mythology, the Finnish epic known as the Kalevala, and his own prodigious skill with languages, Tolkien followed up his children's book with an epic saga that has remained a bestseller ever since. Now, I don't know what they're referring to, but the strongest connection that any of Tolkien's work has with the Kalevala is clearly the Children of Hurin story, Turin Turambar, which is pretty clearly based on the story of Kulervo, which is a book by itself, because Tolkien actually kind of wrote different versions of the story of Kulervo, which kind of formed the germ of the Turin-Turumbar story, and you can see how he develops what was a fairly simple narrative in Kulervo, and expanded it and expanded it, and how that eventually became Turin. I did a review of the book, the story of Kulervo, a while back. I can link to that in the description. But the point here is... Tolkien didn't really use the Kalevala that I'm aware of in The Lord of the Rings at all. There's maybe some touches of Beowulf in it, but nothing beyond maybe some of the stuff in Rohan, like the the hall is kind of based on sort of the hall in Beowulf where Grendel attacks and stuff like that. I mean, but that's just common Anglo-Saxon type architecture, not anything or not even Anglo-Saxon, I guess, maybe Danish, I don't know, but it's not like a huge plot element per se, so I mean, the, the, yeah, he drew on a lot of this stuff for his Middle-earth legendarium, but a lot of it was not in The Lord of the Rings per se, but in The Silmarillion, so acting like he was drawing on all that for The Lord of the Rings is, again, kind of misleading. Now we get into a in-depth discussion of the books themselves, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and Here's where they really start getting some messy things wrong, and, and this one, this first one is really weird, because it's from The Hobbit, and in their description, they say that, "...the quest for the Arkenstone takes the party across Middle-earth from Rivendell to Mirkwood to the Mountain Caves, where Bilbo meets the creature known as Gollum and wins a unique ring in a game of riddles, a chance encounter that will set the Lord of the Rings trilogy in motion." Okay, nitpick, first of all. The Lord of the Rings is not a trilogy. It's one book that was published in three volumes because they didn't have enough paper after World War II. It's not a trilogy. Anyway, you would think, based on the way they wrote this, that A, Bilbo won the ring in the game, which is how Bilbo lied and told the story in the original version of The Hobbit, which Tolkien retconned when he wrote The Lord of the Rings. B, you would think from this that Berkwood came before the mountains, which is obviously false. So, I mean, just... Factual errors. Did they get some 90-year-old person who read the first edition of The Hobbit and never read any updates? Because how did they get the idea that Bilbo won the ring in the riddle game? That's not what happened. They repeat this craziness whenever they start talking about the Fellowship of the Ring and say, when Bilbo Baggins wins the one ring from Gollum... Really? No. He finds it on the ground, people. I mean, seriously, where... Where do these people get their information? And they follow this up with another, again, almost kind of forgivable mistake, but not really. Bear in mind, we're talking about the books. They're going to talk about the movies later. This is still in the book section, and it says, Frodo and Sam set out as the Nazgul make their way to the Shire in search of the ring. Before they can leave, they are joined by Pippin and Merry, two more hobbits and distant cousins of Frodo. Only in the movie version does it happen that way. In the book version, Frodo, Sam, and Pippin all set out together, with Merry having gone on ahead, taking a bunch of Frodo's furniture and other belongings to the house in Crickhollow, where they're pretending he's going to live so that he can sneak out of the Shire quietly and not arouse any suspicion. And then they followed up with this gem. At the Prancing Pony Inn, they expect to find Gandalf, but instead are rescued from the Nazgul by Aragorn, the exiled king of Gondor. Exiled? What? That's... Aragorn is a descendant of a long line of kings of Arnor, who was never exiled from anywhere. He just never has been able, none of those kings have ever been able to establish their claim to the throne of Gondor, which they had both through the fact that they were from the line of Isildur, which was the older of the two brothers, Isildur Denarion, and because they that line intermarried with the royal family of Gondor, and so they had a claim to the throne of Gondor two ways, but when the last king of Arnor made the claim after Gondor's kingship had died out, the stewards rejected that, and they never had any opportunity to really enforce their claim. Aragorn was never exiled from anywhere. He's just a descendant of a long, kind of decrepit kingdom which doesn't even exist anymore. Next, we have this. Their path, after they form the Fellowship, then takes them to the ancient dwarf mines of Moria, where Gandalf is presumed killed by a Balrog. Actually, he is killed by the Balrog. And to the Kingdom of the Wood Elves. (sighs) Almost forgivable, because technically most of the elves of Lothlorien are what we would call wood elves, but when you say the Kingdom of the Wood Elves, most of us are going to think, Mirkwood, because those are the ones that are specifically called the Wood Elves. The Galadhrim are never called that, at least I don't think so, anywhere in the books. So saying that Lothlorien is the kingdom of the Wood Elves is yeah, dicey at best. Now here's a point that doesn't actually merit a spot in this video, except as a point of comparison for how they get some really obscure things right. In another large photo page, they say they identify Kate Blanchett as Galadriel and Elijah Wood as Frodo in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. The Elvish leader's name means maiden crowned with a garden of bright radiance. That is pretty much straight out of what Tolkien says, and I forget what volume it's in. Uh, It might be a history of Middle-earth or it might be a... I don't remember where, but the point is, Tolkien does basically say that that's what the etymology of her name means. But that's not something that you find just in The Lord of the Rings. So they get something hyper-detailed, like that correct, but can't get all these really basic facts right. It's kinda strange. Next we get to the Two Towers, and some of these are, again, kind of like just dicey, but nevertheless poor word choices at best. So for instance... It mentions that Saruman is the formerly righteous leader of Gandalf's wizarding order. Wizarding order. Where have we heard that term before? Harry Potter? You don't say wizarding in the Lord of the Rings. This is just like somebody with too much pop culture in their heads trying to write a piece on just one thing that they happen to know a little bit about. Um, And then in another one, it says, "...with his enhanced powers, Gandalf is able to wrest the kingdom from Saruman's control." Uh, this is so yeesh first of all I have a theory about the scene where Gandalf confronts Theoden and and, you know kind of gets him out of his funk I don't think Gandalf actually uses any magic in that scene of the book I really don't Uh, but regardless you would think from the way this is written that we're talking about the movie where he literally like exercises Saruman from controlling Theoden Théoden was never controlled by anybody, and Gandalf never had to wrest anything from Saruman's control. He just had to point out what was true, how Grima Wormtongue had been lying, and give Théoden some reason to hope, and Théoden did the rest on his own. I mean, it was kind of not very dramatic in the book. I mean, there were some dramatic elements to it, the fact that there's kind of a storm that goes by, a flash of lightning and stuff like that, which may or may not be connected to Gandalf using magic, and I don't think it is, but I'm pretty sure the way they're describing it is based on their recollection of the movie, not the text. And here they clearly go wrong by referring to the movie rather than the book, because they say, Gandalf and the writers of the Rohirrim saved the kingdom at Helm's Deep with the help of a contingent of woodland elves and the bravery of Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn, the latter of which helps command the troops. Woodland elves? You mean all those guys who showed up under the command of Haldir in the movies that never came anywhere near Hell's Deep in the book? Yeah. Now, bear in mind, just to prove my point here, we're still talking about the book. Now, for the Return of the King, again, they say some things that are just kind of like, what? For example, the power dynamics of the kingdom of Gondor now under the stewardship of Denethor II, make up a great deal of the book's action. No, it actually doesn't. As Aragorn and Gandalf struggle to make the stewards see reason in the face of the return of the king, except Aragorn never actually directly speaks to Denethor at all, because by the time he arrives, Denethor is dead. But Denethor is entirely mad, in part because he has been using a seeing stone to spy on Mordor. No, Denethor is not mad, he is... Maybe a little bit nutty, but he's mostly just despairing because of what he's seen and because of Farmir being apparently mortally wounded. And then we have this. After Frodo sees the ring destroyed, the Fellowship is finally reunited, and Frodo joins Bilbo on a trip to the Undying Lands, the elven continent, where they live out their lives in peace. Well, not exactly. See, the elves who are sailing from Middle-earth aren't sailing to the continent of Amon, which is the Undying Lands, they're actually sailing to the Tol Eressia, the island of Tol Eressia, which is kind of considered part of you know, all of that, but it's not the continent. It's an island in the bay of Elvenholm. Again, they're getting their information from the movie, which constantly refers to the Undying Lands and doesn't tell us anything about the island. The book, in fairness, doesn't tell us much of anything about either one, but Based on other writings that we have, we know that Tolkien is imagining these elves sailing to Tol Eressia, not the continent of Amon. Here's just a really cute one that they just... I, I don't even understand this one. But in another one where they've got a photo of the Fellowship standing in Rivendell, it says, The Fellowship gathered at Rivendell as they set off on their quest in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Though John Rhys-Davies is the tallest of the Fellowship actors, Gimli, the character he plays, is the shortest. Did these guys seriously never notice that Gimli is actually taller than all the Hobbits? Now we get into the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales. And you know if they can't get the basics about the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings right, they're going to really screw this up. So get ready. First of all, they mention the different sections of the Silmarillion. And they're doing basically okay until they get to the Quinta Silmarillion, Which forms the majority of the text is a retelling of the first age of Middle-earth. It tells of the creation of the various races of Middle-earth from Elves to Ents by their respective Valar and of the attempt by Melkor to bring Middle-earth under his power. The Valar don't create any races except Aule creates the dwarves. That's it. The rest of the races are created apparently by Eru Direct. Especially Elves and Men. And the Ents it's a little bit fuzzy what exactly happens there, but you get the idea that when Yavanna has her little spat with Aule about dwarves cutting down trees and things like that, the ints who are created, that was already kind of part of the plan, and not really something that she had a, like a direct role in in the same way that Aule had with dwarves. Regardless, including elves in this list as if elves were created by the Valar, is just way off-base. The Akalabath tells the history of the Second Age of Middle-earth, primarily recounting the fall of Numenor and the fate of the Dunedain. No, actually, the Akalabath is all about Numenor and its fall, and has almost nothing to do with most of the history of the Second Age. There's very little to do with what happens in Middle-earth in that entire chapter, which is so acting like it's a summary history of the Second Age is completely wrong. But continuing on the Akalabath, it says, Sauron, the former servant of another Dark Lord, Morgoth, attaches himself to the King of Numenor, much as Saruman would later do to Theoden of Rohan. Saruman does not attach himself to Theoden. He undermines Theoden through the use of Grima Wormtongue, who he has gotten to serve him instead of Theoden, which is a very, very different thing. And then this is just, like, I feel like somebody was looking for a word here and picked the wrong word because it says, Finally, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age acts as a short prologue to the Third Age and the events to th- of the Lord of the Rings. No, it's not a prologue to the Lord of the Rings. It actually kind of just summarizes the entirety of the Third Age, including the, the the Lord of the Rings. Like, it's not a prologue in any sense because it, Constitutes the story in a total nutshell. I mean, like, really nutshell, but I mean, it goes right through the destruction of the ring in that chapter, so calling it a prologue to The Lord of the Rings makes no sense at all. Then we finally get to the unfinished tales, and man, do they get a lot wrong here. They say the first part of Tolkien's unfinished tales, published posthumously under the watchful eye of his son Christopher, covers the early history of Middle-earth and begins with a later-era writing of the fall of Gondolin which would later be turned into a full-length manuscript and published on its own. Turned into a full-length manuscript and published on its own? I mean, the Fall of Gondolin volume that came out not too many years ago is really a collection of, you know, different versions of the Fall of Gondolin comparing and contrasting, like, how the story developed in much the same way that the Baird and Luthian one did, so... That's kind of not really a very accurate way of describing that book. Then they start talking about the Second Age material, and they say that a description of the island of Numenor is followed by one of the epic tales of the kings of Numenor, a stargazer named Tar Aldarion. The sad tale of his abdication is followed by a king list of Numenor. That's just so wrong, I can't even express how wrong it is, because Tar Aldarion was not a stargazer. His father, Tar Meneldur, was a stargazer who abdicated. Aldarion was a seafarer who kept his throne when his father abdicated, because his father wasn't sure what to do about Sauron, and so he ended up basically just tossing the decision to his son, and they don't even mention the fact that the whole story is kind of a a a messed up love story between Aldarion and Erendis and all the things that go on there. Like, they bring up the fact about stargazing, which isn't even correct about Aldarion, but they don't mention the crux of the story. It's like, what? Did anybody actually read this in preparation for this piece? Then in the third mage material, they get into the stories of how Gondor and Rohan came to be in alliance and how the nation of Rohan itself came to exist, And they say, uh, let's see, the next tale tells the story of the two kingdoms of of Rohan and Gondor and their long history of friendship, which by the events of the Lord of the Rings has fallen into disrepair. There's nothing about their friendship that's fallen into disrepair. The kingdom of Rohan itself has fallen into disrepair in the sense that Theoden is no longer really in his right mind in a sense, but they still have a strong alliance with Gondor. Now, we finally covered all the book material, but there's still some errors left to be found, even if they're only errors by omission in some cases. And when they start talking about the movies, initially they start out with just talking about early attempts at adaptation, and they mention a really early BBC radio play that Tolkien was not a huge fan of, apparently, which apparently doesn't even exist anymore. It says all the copies were lost. But it's not the BBC version that we now know today, starring... Um, what's his name, Michael Holdern, Holdern Hold, I can't pronounce his name for some reason, Hordern, Holdern, I can't remember his last name now, as Gandalf, and Ian Holm as Bilbo, I mean not Bilbo, Frodo, and various others. They don't mention that BBC version at all for some really strange reason. They just skip over it and talk about this really early one that apparently Tolkien didn't like, And another and then they skip to Ralph Bakshi's animated Lord of the Rings. Leaving out that BBC one is kinda criminal because it in a lot of people's minds, it's kinda like the definitive adaptation prior to Peter Jackson's and you know, depending on who you ask, is still the best adaptation. This next one is not so much a mistake as just kind of like a journalistic what were you thinking? Because here on another big photo page we have a line about how Saruman is standing with one of the Urukai, and it says, According to screen rant, the Urukai makeup took 10 hours to apply. You're relying on screen rant? Screen rant is terrible. Also, you have the extended edition appendices discs that you could probably get this information from if you really wanted to verify it. Now, of course, they can't leave off without talking about the Amazon show that's coming up. And so, of course, they have this image, which we all know and love now. But in the bottom corner, it says, the first official image from Amazon's Amazon's series shows Minas Tirith in the Second Age. Does that look like Minas Tirith to any of you? First of all, we don't have, I don't think we have any confirmation yet of exactly what city this is supposed to be. But there's basically no chance that it's Minas Tirith. It's either something in Volanor, or something in Numenor, or, I don't know, but, I mean, like, there's no evidence that it's Minas Tirith that I'm aware of. If I'm wrong, and in fairness, I have kind of intentionally avoided a whole lot of news about the show to avoid spoilers, if I'm wrong about that, let me know in the comments, but I'm pretty sure there's no evidence that that's Minas Tirith. In a description of what the show will be about, they quote, one of the longer kind of synopses that have been leaked by Amazon. Leaked is the wrong word. I mean, Amazon hasn't let out much, but they did kind of give a synopsis thing. But then they end up saying, this summary has led to speculation that the show might might have to do with the fall of Numenor and the rise of Morgoth. I'm sorry, the rise of who? I mean, it was earlier in this magazine itself that they told us that the fall of Numenor was connected with Sauron, who is a servant of Morgoth, and now they can't even get that right. I mean, like, did they have multiple people writing these, and somebody, you know, who didn't know literally anything wrote this little blurb? It's just like, oh my gosh, the the level of incorrect information is so bad. And that wraps up my take on it. I think I caught all of the major errors. There may be some of the biographical details that they got wrong or something I didn't I don't have a good enough memory of all of that to be certain of most of it most of it seemed correct based on my memory um and there may be some other errors that I just kind of glided over because once you start getting to a certain level of you know just so much inf- misinformation you you kind of start gliding over things probably but if y'all noticed any other mistakes that I didn't catch here, leave them in the comments below. Uh, let's let's try to make this video popular so that Newsweek knows how stupid they are about this. It's like, if you're going to publish a 20th anniversary edition for the Lord of the Rings, could you try to get basic facts right? Just, just really basic facts? Like, Gandalf saving Frodo at Weathertop? Like, that's just... Where did that even come from? Seriously, where did that, and that was on page three, or four, or something like that. That was almost at the very beginning, before it even got to the main text of the magazine. It's terrible. Ugh. So, yeah, this, this magazine edition is fake news to, like, the nth degree. It's so bad. Um, that said, it's got a real a lot of really nice photos and art, and it does kind of nicely summarize a lot of Information about Tolkien's life and and whatnot is just don't don't give this to anybody that you want to learn about any of Middle Earth, thinking that they're going to get an accurate picture because unless you already know the information going into it, in which case you don't need the magazine, you're going to come away thinking a lot of false things. So I hope this was useful for anybody out there. If you've already got the magazine and you didn't know any better, hopefully this corrects a lot of things you thought you now knew. If you haven't gotten the magazine or maybe were thinking about giving it to somebody else, I hope you may reconsider that in light of this. At any rate, if you did enjoy the video or found it useful, please do give it a thumbs up, share it around. For anybody else that might have fallen into the trap of believing this nonsense, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just so bad it's so bad um, anyway if you want to you know, make sure you catch all my videos please subscribe to the channel and click that bell icon I'm also on Odyssey and Rumble and you can catch podcast versions as well and I'm on Twitter at JRRTLore if you want to catch some occasional Tolkien related trivia questions and you can support me over at Patreon until the next time I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel Na marie.